stay with the coach. Day twenty radio, your gamers roll. www.d20radio.com. Well, well, what have we here? Welcome to the wonders of Fedas. Welcome to the Wonders of Thetis podcast, your one-stop shop for all your Dragon Age role-playing game needs. My name is Ren. I'm Jessica. And we have a couple of very special guests with us today to talk about some very special topics. Um, and, you know, first, of course, we have our uh, returning guest host, semi-permanent, um, semi-permanent actual host, uh, Andy Klosky from uh, Blackfall Press. Hi. Well, happy Thanksgiving. <laughs> right. Oh, thank you. Happy Thanksgiving to our uh, American listeners. Mm-hmm. And uh, reaching a bit over the pond, we have a very special guest here, uh, one who we've uh, often called our number one fan. Uh, mm-hmm. You would know him as Parsival from the Green Ronin forums, uh, but today you'll know him as Toby. Welcome to the show. Uh, it's great to be with you. Yes, uh, my true name is finally revealed. Yes. <laughs> At long last. <laughs> It's been a grand good to have you on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think we've had maybe. I think the number of episodes we've had where Parsifal didn't ask a question. I think we can count it on one hand. I'm pretty sure, and I don't know how much podcast we would have had if uh, you hadn't been here to ask us some good questions. So, definitely figured it was high time to get you yeah, on. Yeah, no, I deliberately didn't shop. didn't make a question for this podcast because I thought I might be on it. And uh, answering my own question seemed rather odd. <laughs> <laughs> You know, fair enough. All right. Well, uh, well, unfortunately, it's well, I guess not unfortunately, but Andy will be answering one of his own questions. I, I'm used to it. I'd so. rather fortunately, in my opinion. Right. You're, you're used to it. But, um, so we've got a really cool show for you folks today. Uh, besides having a cool, a bunch of really cool folks on to talk with us uh, about the wonders, about wonders in Thetis and Dragon Age, we're talking about, uh, um, Let's see, another topic that, of course, we voted on on our social media. We had a really good race this time, with, and I tried to... Um, I usually was, like, recycling a lot of topics, so, like, bringing that back, like, traps and place. hazards and uh, the things that didn't make first place last time, but I found I was also always adding a fourth topic that folks always got super excited about, so mm-hmm. I thought I'd throw out four exciting-sounding topics this time. Um, All killer, I, no filler. Exactly. Uh, this time we uh, had the see the big winner. This time was telling epic stories, and I'm sure we've got plenty to say about that. Oh yes, it's a bit vague, and we're going to be uh, trying to cover um, Dragon Age as well as just kind of RPGs in general. Um, but we've got plenty. We've got plenty to talk about even before that. So um, moving on, first we want to let folks know. Um, that is, by the time this podcast has gone live, the Kickstarter for Gamer Nation 5 will be ended with all of their stretch goals unlocked. Woo! Uh, unfortunately, uh, I looked into it, we couldn't get there for cheaper than, like, $400 total, so... For us, just because for, we just got quite us. the travel. Yeah, and, I mean, that that alone was not including things like gas and food. Oh, hey, so, yeah. like, that was assuming that we just kind of apparate there and don't need, and, and don't need sustenance. Uh, although we, that is assuming we need a place to sleep at least. So unfortunately, we'll probably not be able to attend Gamer Nation Con. Yeah, barring a sudden windfall, it will. I mean, be, I mean and then we'd have to use that to pay off like a car or something. Right. 
So be oh, well. stuff that comes before it, unfortunately. Stupid so we, grown up real life. Uh, we will not be able to join our colleagues at the D20 Radio Network at Gamer Nation Con 5, but I'm sure it will be a grand old time, especially for the folks who are in the Plano, Texas area. Um, they sold, or they originally sell their tickets through the Kickstarter, so you might as well take a look at where, and see, at the con and see if there's any room left. Last year they were, I think, 25 passes short of selling out completely. Wow. Yeah. I mm-hmm. bet you this will be one of those that gets sold out all the way, like Gen Con did this year. Mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, it, it's come by in April, April 5th through the 8th, 2018, of course. Um, we're skipping this week in Thetis. We got nothing to report uh, at this moment. We got plenty to talk about. Um, why don't we go ahead and jump right into uh, that codex? You can ask me questions if you like. I'm not sure why you'd want to, but... Oh, good. Thank you. I'm going to regret this, aren't I? Welcome to the codex. We've got we've got a nice uh, motley cr- uh, collection, motley crew, something, something or other. We have many questions, and many we will e- answer all of them. Many overextended metaphors. <laughs> we have a lot of those too. Oh, definitely. Um, but uh, first question comes from Brent Ganja. Ganja. I really hope we I'm also have right. a long history of mispronouncing people's names yeah, on the podcast, which I feel so. really bad about because my name gets mispronounced all the time, and I don't want to do it to other people because if and I know how it feels. Well, we're trying our best. But, uh, Brent, your question was, uh, my crew and I had some different opinions about how the journeyman chirurgy ability slash talents work. Can you use heal as a minor and then later as a major action, using it twice around? Or do you have to have a stash of first aid kits? Or does it no longer require mana or inventory to perform once you've leveled up chirurgy? So, just in general, how does that chirurgy talent work? I think you can absolutely do it twice in a round, yeah. as far as I can tell. I mean, the problem is you can't use it on someone twice, like one person twice in a row, mm-hmm. unless somehow they get injured between your minor action and your major action, which would be impressive, but... Or if you're doing that really cheesy thing where folks are like, oh, I cut myself, did one point of damage, but you guess I can get healed again. Like, that's not going to happen on your turn. It's not going to happen in the middle could, of the healer's what if turn. They, like, they could like prepare an action. <laughs> that's... It's ridiculous. <laughs> to cut themselves as you're trying to fix them. Wouldn't that resolve, like, before, technically? No, that's a Pathfinder rule. I don't know how that would even resolve. It would go off exactly when they wanted it to, I guess. But the, uh, that would resolve that. in a GM headache, so... Exactly. Don't be that player. So please don't be that player. I do think it does require first aid kits. I'm pretty sure you... I mean, you have to have one first aid kit, but I think it just doubles the usage yes. of the first aid kit. It says, it says that you have to have bandages ready. Yeah, so have your first aid kit out. <laughs> be dual wielding bandages yeah go for it you got you can take two minor actions in a round so absolutely take two minor actions heal folks um and then so i think i think that's i think that's pretty much it yeah i think i think that's how that works for us anybody else have anything yeah that sounds pretty straightforward but yeah i think the operative uh operative thing though is that yeah you can't Reheal someone you just healed. That, mm-hmm. that that's something I think tends to get overlooked, especially you know in your Pathfinders, your D and Ds, where it's like cure moderate wounds, now cure serious wounds, and it's a different act. Yeah, no kidding. I'm gonna bat myself with this cure light wand 37 times in a row. Oh, I remember those days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Toby, do you have anything you wanna add? I guess they'd have to be 
I mean, yeah, if you can, <clears throat> I guess the uh, the recipients of your healing would literally have to both be standing next to you at the same Correct. time, wouldn't they? No, that so is a good point. If you're going to do one and then the other, uh, you'd have to be in this sort of bizarre situation where you sort of hands on one, hands on another, because you wouldn't be able to move, would you, if you're no. using two minor actions to, to That's heal? Right. That's so, correct. Um, yeah. I, d I doubt whether it'll. Um, I wouldn't have thought it'll occur very often, but uh, physically mm -hmm. possible. Mm -hmm. Right. It would be tricksy. You'd have to like be surrounded by friends who are all getting stabbed. I mean, and just I kind think we've actually done that before, though. I think <laughs> I, mean, I don't have got, the charity. You got magic to do it with. But I think Callian has done that Callian before, does, where yeah. Alora and I are both standing, or it was maybe Alora and Vinok are both standing within range, mm. and she's had to like you know one-handed wrap up each person's leg or whatever, mm. just to or just sprinkle healing poultice all over them. Yeah, just slap poultices on people's faces. Bam. <laughs> just That's remember, you're not supposed to drink it. <laughs> exactly. It's a poultice. Yeah. You're not yeah. supposed to drink it. <laughs> Wiser words. Um, and see, and I think we I think we know this next person who asked the que has the question. It, it seems uh, familiar. Right. It seems rather yeah. familiar. Uh, Andy Klosky, uh, through our email, asked us, uh, "Do you place barriers within your game towards choosing specializations?" Within the video games, the player traditionally has to find an appropriate trainer or a training manual to select a given specialization, though this seems to be fading away as the game has evolved. Are your players free to choose any specialization for which they qualify, or do you build in a prove-your-worth type quest? I think they're, uh, well, as far as we go, we mm -hmm. tend to make it sort of within the realm of reason. Like, yeah. if you don't have dragon blood, you're not likely to become a reaver anytime soon. But... If it's something that the player really wants, a specialization the player really wants their character to look into, and it's feasible, like, you know, not a rogue who wants to be a force mage, but then we can usually find a way to be like, so hey, there are these people who are able to do this thing, and if you complete X, then you can probably make this happen. Fair enough, yeah. That's my I experience think, from what you've done. Right. I think when I originally wrote the cam, the, like the beginnings of the campaign, I actually I picked a couple of NPCs and like wrote down, this person can teach this specialization if the PCs ask. Um, some of them I probably could have been a bit more overt about what, about the fact that they that they were available for training. Cause yeah, I, we there, didn't know. There was a, uh, an, an NPC who had, uh, the only hint I gave was that they had an Orlesian accent, but they were actually a bard at one point. Oh, um, and, uh, who was I, that? There was uh, an Orlesian character who was living in Sothmare, actually. I missed that entirely. Yep. I mean, yep. I wasn't going to become I mean, a chevalier, so that's right. fine. But... So I don't think, I, I, I think everybody got the specializations they wanted. I think we did. Um, but I definitely, I think for the most part, I required trainers. Um, like Callian, um, Callian learned Duelist from Izaz. Yes. And then she, she learned, learned Shadow, Shadow from Veril. Um, you kind of picked up Spirit Healer. I had a sort of trainer. There was that one yeah. Avar dude. That's right, yeah. There was the Avar uh, in Redhold when we did that adventure who was a spirit channeler. And so he kind of taught her some, he taught you some tricks to call spirits. Okay. And it turned uh, out there was a spirit following you the whole time. Did Alora actually learn Guardian or did Alora just sort of become Guardian? Because there, uh, there are a couple of specializations that I usually think are just generally available. Like, um, I think for me it's usually Guardian is generally available. Um, something like Marksman could be gen could be seen as generally available. Um, let's see. I, th I think it was mostly Warrior ones. I could see Champion being generally available. 
I would um, make an argument that Blood Mage should be generally available I, because we can I was, all tap into it if we want to. Right, right. Mm. I mean, if you really want to I'm be I'm not that saying kind I want mage. to be a Blood Mage, but I'm just saying everybody can. Exactly, yeah. It's always there, you know. You just need a little bit more power, right? Um, I think I was definitely open to the concept of using manuals, um... Although, then I had to think, like, how much would that cost? How much does it cost to unlock yeah. abilities for your character to take later on? And it's less on? thematic and less story-driven uh-huh. to have manuals, I think. Yes, definitely. I mean, I guess for, like, really short campaigns where you don't really have the time to talk to an NPC about it, then I could see manuals being uh, a better choice. Yeah, but we were we were in this for the long haul, mm-hmm. so character development. Uh, there was definitely a quest to unlock... Alora's second specialization. That was true, yeah. Um, and your second specialization was just kind of unlocked. It's kind of a given. It was kind of a given. Just I was a keeper. I get were, to be a you keeper. You were the first of a keeper already. It was kind of like I'd already been trained. Uh, right. Um, I've also heard and uh, considered myself allowing PCs to like pick one specialization that they've been working towards already. That one's already unlocked for them, but they have to work to get the second one. I think that's fair. So, many options, and those are the ones we've used. Hope what? that hope that helps, Andy. Yeah, what do you guys think? Do you want to, Andy, do you want to weigh in on your own question? <laughs> um, at least within the context of the, the campaign that I ran uh, previously, the uh, the Scenic Dunsmith game, we, we mm-hmm. started at 6th level, so um, when, through the course of play, they are they had already started as uh, with a specialization, so it's, it's not something that really came up, and we ended before they would have gone... There, uh, before they would have gotten their second specialization, because we ran okay. from like sixth to like about eleventh level, yeah. so it wasn't really something that that came up uh, for us. But I couldn't help but note, you know, Dragon Age Origins made a very big, finite deal of okay, well, you can't take the you know Berserker specialization unless you've recruited Ogren, or you found this manual over in... I don't even remember <laughs> where that one was. Yeah. Whereas in 2 and then in Inquisition, it's more of a given. It's th- You're going to specialize in a thing, and uh, where you still had the trainers in 2, in, by the time you hit Inquisition, it's, well, we're going to bring the trainers to you, and you just pick one and do their quest. Mm-hmm. So, so it seems like there's an evolution ongoing there, and uh, I kind of wanted to see what you how you guys thought of that in terms of the tabletop game. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I'd say that um, in Dragon Age Inquisition, it's um, the quest involved were actually a bit more fun than just reading a manual. You know, so <laughs> for Reaver, for example, you have to um, you do actually have to find a few clips from a, from the manual, but as I recall, you have to um, pick up some infusion primers from other mm. reaver types that you um you kill and as you say the um, the good old you know dragon blood or wyvern blood is um <laughs> yep. is useful and i always find it's quite um uh, one of my the campaign i'm running at the moment is um the pcs are agents of the inquisition and one of them is uh, tamar you know from the multiplayer um part of the game and mm. um, she's going to be becoming a, a reaver and um i've used the uh, the trainers that are at skyhold to be the trainers of the pcs so um, I can't remember the name of the uh, of the Reaver one, but she's always giving Tamar advice, and 
um, or, or mm-hmm. basically correcting her, you know, saying, why are you, why are you getting healing from, from um, the mages? You know, you should be healing yourself from the fear of your enemies and these sorts of things, you know. Um, <coughs> so well, I think it's more fun if, you, if the PCs have to jump yeah. through some hoops. Um, it makes it more memorable and, you know, differentiates them. Mm-hmm. I don't think it should be enormously, it shouldn't be enormously difficult, but, um, you know, I the agree. Reaper one in particular, get, you know, getting hold of some dragon. Are you going to go for the high dragon? You're going to go for a wyvern or you're going to just get a, a little dragonling? <laughs> um, it's, up, it's up to you, but um, it's something, you know, something, something helps. But I agree yeah, yeah. that some of them, uh, like Marksman um, uh, and the others you mentioned, <clears throat> um, should be pretty much, you know, almost an, an evolution of a simple warrior. Um, but where you can, I think a few hoops aren't a bad thing to jump through. Yeah. Yeah, I think it it, it, it shows more. a bit about how your character is, what you're willing to do to get there, and what your, uh, sort of, what kind of character you are. Are you able to go the distance? Are you the kind of person who thinks, I'm not good enough unless I go for that high dragon? Or are you the kind of person who's like, I mean, if I get a dragonling and then I drink its blood, it's going to be just as good, right? Absolutely. Like, Maybe that tells a you a lot about who yeah. you are. Mm-hmm. I dig it. Um, I definitely think that the uh, different campaign styles for those games, the way you got specializations kind of matched. Like, Dragon Age 2 didn't really have you a lot of time to go looking for folks because... Stuff was going down in Kirkwall. Heavily story driven. Mm-hmm. And then um, Dragon Age Origins is like is a big journey. So you're kind of meeting those people along the way, or um, picking up a book to read while you're on the while you're on the road. But in Inquisition, you know you're always going back to a home base, so you've got a trainer there who you can always go back to and learn a few extra pointers from. So um, it can be very much what the campaign needs, as well as uh, uh, what your story uh, like what your story needs. Um, like narrative wise. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty <laughs> darn good answer to that question. Yeah. I, I was pretty pleased. I always <laughs> thought it would be it would be a neat thing if, you know, maybe wish list for Dragon Age four whenever that comes out, that you know, based on your dialogue choices with your NPCs or based how you treat them or how you interact with them they they choose a specialization based on that Ooh, i like that so oh, maybe cool. it would be possible to make someone like dorian he's not always a necromancer he's gonna oh if you if you trigger the right dialogue options or if you have his approval high enough he'll have it you could have him choose between that and rift mage or something else okay that's a really cool idea it's kind of like the uh the options to harden characters and origins but yeah for mechanical benefit mm-hmm and it definitely makes it more tangible because then it then it becomes okay. Well, I want to make sure that you know this character is is someone that, uh, or make sure that this character likes me because if they like me enough, they're gonna get this awesome specialization or this awesome you know uh, new ability. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I dig it. That's 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 a good way to go. Yeah. Well, let's cross our fingers and hope that that's in later games. Yeah. Let's see, huh? Be cool. All right. I suppose there's a tiny. Isn't there a tiny bit of that with Anders in Dragon Age Two? I think don't you get to choose one of two routes that he can go down for his specialization? Right. A sort of I think spirit was, healer, uh... isn't it? Or a sort of um, you can either go a sort of vengeancey, you know, dishing out damage, or um, you can, re- yeah. Um, I think, so they sort I... of brought that in a bit. I can't remember if I think, but I'm not sure it's through your interactions with him that he chooses. I think you choose yourself. 
Right. I think the player, like, when they're leveling up, Anders chooses. I don't think uh, but, the story I, does. I think you're right. Or, like, I think Andy's right in that it would have been better if the story had made that. That would have been a perfect example of it working, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, tie it. Oh, I agree. Yeah, tie it directly mm. to the awesome. actions that you take or the dialogue that you mm. have with that NPC. If you're becoming a good friend with Anders, maybe he focuses uh, a bit more on the uh, the justice side. Or if you're rivals worked, with yeah. Anders, he becomes more vengeance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I dig that. Yeah. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. So, um, it's, thank you, Andy, for the question. We appreciate it as always. <laughs> My pleasure. It's always nice to hear feedback on our on our answers, like before we even post the show. That's that's really that's progress right there. Mm-hmm. So uh, our next question comes from Is Destroyer on the D Twenty Radio forums. Hello, uh, I believe I've heard you I had a couple of your questions on the uh, Order sixty six podcast. Um, let's see, way back when and recently. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, Is Destroyer has been around for a while and is has been is a fan of our show too. Yay. We love our fans. So, uh, IS Destroyer's question uh, is a let's see is a bit of a long one. So we'll uh, let's see we'll jump into it. Uh, would it be wise to change some mechanics of the game? And if I wanted to do it anyway, would be the best way without unbalancing the game? Uh, for example, I want to alter the penetrating mechanic related to armor. Rather than bypassing all armor, it would be a property of certain weapons against certain types of armor. Uh, Let's see, each kind of armor will be resistant to one or more kinds of damage, uh, bypassed by others. You could rename the penetrating mechanic to something else. Um, to further ground the game in realism rather than abstraction does make it more complicated, although uh, it can make certain weapons and armors more useful and diverse. Players can be strategic as well as the GM. Uh, the pierce armor stunt might need to be adjusted. Uh, what do you think? Is this something that's feasible without altering the mechanicals in a general sense? Thanks for your time. Uh, this, I think, starts creeping into, uh, some sort of, uh, almost Pathfinder-y 3-5 levels of detail, which, and don't get me wrong, I literally played Pathfinder last night, I love Pathfinder, but <laughs> I think that that could find a hard, you might have a hard time meshing something with that much specificity into such a, uh, sort of free-form mm. game structure. Yeah, game and, that's... Trying to remain some uh, free form, having a couple numbers, but uh, trying to remain, uh, trying to like give them lots of room. Mm-hmm. If it's something you really want to try, I think that you know it could be cool. I think you know adding a little bit more specificity could be interesting if you can manage it. You would have some issues with uh, not just Pierce armor, but things like Pierce armor. There are a number of things like. Uh, my favorite telekinetic weapons. Ugh. Would well, you'd have to decide how that works now? <laughs> Disgusted noise. Hey, hey! Don't hate on my telekinetic weapons. You're oh, just man. mad. Because it just wrecks because everything. Because they wreck everything. But uh, regard. Besides that, also the armor mastery, uh, mastery level of the armor talent. Yes, that would have to be adjusted too. Uh, Andy, did you want to say something? Um, you guys are being very nice about it. I, I'm, I'm going to go for the throat. No, I would not do this. Um, this is something that within within tabletop role-playing, this is something nearly every system has moved away from wholesale mm-hmm. because 
it adds a clunky layer of complexity. Okay, well, I'm wielding a flail, and the flail does bludgeoning and piercing damage, but he's wearing plate, so I get the bonus against, uh, because I'm using a bludgeoning weapon against plate, but this is piercing as well, so it's a hot mess. I gotcha, And yes, there are a number of systems out there. I can think of things like metal magic and lore, or... Uh, or Zweihander, you know, some of the some of the indie systems that really mm-hmm. take it upon themselves to dig into this. But at the end of the day, the question you have to ask yourself before before making a mechanical change of this magnitude, because it means changing the way the damage works, it means changing the mm-hmm. way that certain spells work, it means changing mm-hmm. the way that armor works. You're changing a lot of the combat in, in the age system here by making this sort of change. What fun does this add? Gotcha. What fun that is, a is very it important for the? What fun is it for the player to root around in their golf bag of weapons, saying, hmm. "Okay, well that guy's in chainmail. Let me let me pull out my spear. Oh well, that guy over there has has plates. So let me get my warhammer." What fun does it add to do that, both as a player and as a GM? The answer that I've come to pretty much across the board in as both a, a player, as a GM, and a designer has been it doesn't. Because it adds a layer of complexity that just slows things down, and at the end of the day, we're still talking about eight points of damage. I think that's probably a really valuable point. I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to be sort of try to try to give some hope that Something like this. I mean, if somebody really wants to, I guess I'm not going to stop them. But I do agree that, at best, it's going to make things more complicated, and at worst, mm-hmm. it's going to seriously wonk up the balance of combat. And at the It'd end of the day, probably work better for like. Uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, at the end of the day, IS Destroyer. If you're listening to this, you know it's your <laughs> game. If your players mm-hmm. love that level of crunch, if they love that level of minutia, and your game is going to be better for it. Go nuts. Like, I'm not going to leap through the podcast and land <laughs> on top of your table until you know you're playing wrong. It's your game. You that have fun awesome, with it. That would be awesome, though. That would. That's, that's superpowers on that the sounds like blood magic. unheard of. But, <laughs> that would be super cool. But I think before making that level of change, because it is a not insignificant change to, to the game as written, You've got to ask yourself, what fun am I adding? What fun am I providing to my players by by changing this level of mechanic? Because I think, especially in this sort of answer, you're not adding that much fun. And if and if that's the sort of fun that you want to have, maybe you got to look at a different type of system. Uh, I mentioned Zweihander. I mentioned mm-hmm. Metal Magic and Lore. Those are two, you know. indie systems that are both really heavily rooted in that so if that's what if that is what's fun for you that already exists don't try to don't try to hammer the 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 circular peg into the square hole by trying to get dragon age to do something Mm -hmm. that's already being better done by another system well i remember in the um in the 1980s playing is it rollmaster um from iron Mm -hmm. crown enterprises and it had a, a weapon book with um, each different type of weapon had a chart, which was one A4 side of paper, you know, so you'd have a 
a mace and a morning star um <clears throat> and, and each you know, <laughs> and it had against each different type of armor so um you could there are systems out there some of them are out of publication there and uh, if you do change something like that just remember there'll be unintended consequences you know you'll change one thing and then other things will change too you know and some other things will become overpowered like healing or something you know, so but generally speaking i'm with andy I'd, it's, a, it's meant to be a simple I, system i remember yeah. the first time oh sorry i'm running that's right yeah no go ahead I remember the first time I came across something like this, and it was in it was in second edition Dungeons and Dragons, where they had, you know, diff- and it was the Combat and Tactics book. It was the, the black and red, and oh, I was so enthralled with it because it's the first time where they had oh the optional combat rules and how to do things like tripping and disarming and making fighters you know sort of cool. But the more complexity you add to something the more you have to engage with that complexity to make it have fun, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, mm, a lot of yeah. uh, my home Absolutely players true. ran into that with 4th edition uh, D&D, wherein if we're playing any other role-playing game, you know they'll come up with creative, off-the-wall ideas of how to deal with things in combat. It becomes very easy to swing from a chandelier and kick this guy and push him into the... Uh, push him into the fireplace within the context of that game because it's so grounded within its within its mechanical complexity. It became a matter of okay, well, I don't have the power. I don't have a power that lets me push this guy the four squares that he needs to go to get into the fireplace and take X amount of damage. So. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, and then it's like, oh, what kind of armor is he wearing? Am I going to deal any damage with my leather boot? Uh, are they going yeah. to resist the fire damage? Uh, what about that falling damage? Is the armor going to cushion them? And it, that's a you lot have... of extra steps that we're adding. Yeah, if you're not careful, complexity it... can get in the way of fun, and when that happens, that can be a problem. You said exactly what I was about to say. It's it gets <laughs> to the point where the the more complexity you add, the more obstacles you add to having fun on a general level and fun is hard to quantify if i if i could do that i'd be on i'd be on a book tour somewhere with you know mike merles and monty cook and all those you know luminaries Woo! i get with this book tour i feel like we got to make this happen <laughs> something like that but dragon age and the age system and this is totally my opinion occupies this wonderful mm. little middle ground where Yes, there's crunch. Yes, you have to pick spells carefully. And yes, you get incremental bonuses as you level up. But it's, it's not so weighty as, as your D&D, as your Pathfinder, as your role master. Oh, dear Lord. <laughs> role master. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and if you're going to try to push it in that direction, you lose some of the elegance that's inherent to the system. So... Uh, I hate to, well, I don't hate to be the cynic. I'm, I'm naturally cynical, but I hate to burst the bubble. <laughs> I would say, IS, man, I I would not go this route. If, if, if that's the sort of fun that you want to have, find a system that better accentuates that, uh, that sort of fun. Don't try to, don't try to hammer it into one that's meant to abstract it. I'm glad you were both were here to help us stop beating around <laughs> the bush. Yeah, we, we, we may occasionally do that. Yeah, it's good to have somebody be like, nah, 
Nah, don't do it. But those are all very good points. And I, I completely agree with you, Andy. That is one of the reasons I love uh, the age system so much is it because we, we, we played a lot of Pathfinder. Mm-hmm. So, and before that, I played 3.0 and mm-hmm. AD&D since I was like a little bitty. You know? uh-huh. it's, and it definitely is got that middle ground of um, kind of like a more freeform game like, uh, like Fate uh, and a more uh, mathematically grounded game like Pathfinder or Dungeons mm-hmm. and Dragons, um, and I and I think that's I think that's one of the reasons uh, that we wanted to make a podcast about this because we think it's we think it's super cool. Not to say that you change IS Destroyer. Not to say that you uh, adjusting how one or two mechanics work is going to tear that whole thing down. But there, especially something like that, there's a lot of consequences that you'll want to be careful of. Like Toby said, and I think I'm just repeating it. I think now. you are, but it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, maybe we should move on. But thank you, Thank IS you for Destroyer. the question. Thank you for the question. Uh, of course, if you have a question about the Wonders of, uh, about the Dragon Age RPG or the Wonders of Fetus, you know, whatever, uh, whether it's mechanics, build suggestions, questions about lore, clarifications about old episodes, or anything else, send a message to wondersofthetuspodcast at gmail.com. Send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Cot the Protector or Healer Puff in the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lease on the D20 radio forums. That's us. All right. So, good questions, all. Thank you all very much. Um, we're going to be skipping our dissonant verses today. We've got plenty to talk about uh, here in just a moment um, because we need to uh, let's see. We need to uh, get to the climax of this epic story we are telling. <laughs> mm-hmm. That said, if you like to share yours or someone else's with their permission, custom Dragon Age RPG content, send a message to wondersofthetispodcast at gmail.com, send it to us through our Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, or SoundCloud accounts, or send a personal message to Cot the Protector or Healer Puff on the Green Running forums, or send a message to Cot or Lise on the D20 radio forums. That's us. How did I do I was, I was impressed. That was, that was good. All right. Nice. I always wanted to do that. <laughs> Thought I'd take that from you. Ooh. Toby, I think you were here for a first of the podcast. Nice. Yep, it's a first. I don't think I've done that yet. Now I've done it. Now it's happened. Here we are. <clears throat> I'm on it. All right. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, I suppose we should probably, uh, let's see, get to that climax and tell this story we want to tell in our main topic for today. So you want to tell a good story. I do. We can't say that all of us here have a professional opinion on writing good stories in RPGs, although maybe one or two of us does. That's true. We may actually have some professional opinions here on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Got a a couple notches in the the belt here, so to speak. All right. Uh, that being said, uh, we have been, see the folks here have been playing RPGs for quite a while, so we'd like to share what has worked for us and what hasn't. Mm-hmm. Just because we're not professionals doesn't mean we're, uh, not pretty darn good at the storytelling thing by now. Mm-hmm. Uh, when did, let's see, uh, just kind of question for the table. When did everybody here start, uh, like, playing role-playing games and, like, kind of cutting our chops? Um... Toby? Um, about 1981 I started, 1982, something like that. Oh, um, 
Whoa. So um, you got us beat. <laughs> so what 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 got you into the into the hobby? What was your gateway drug? Um, I suppose uh, sort of fighting fantasy books of you know Steve Jackson and Ian Livingston, and then um, role playing wise, just okay. basic Dungeons and Dragons as it was then. Uh, moved on to Expert, and then never actually <laughs> managed to skip advanced D D actually. So uh, around the sort of mid eighties. Um, all my group got into Warhammer fancy roleplay. Um, gotcha. And, ah. You know, for that's been to be fair, that's the main game. That's the big campaigns I've I've run uh, have been Warham- Warhammer mm-hmm. campaigns. Uh, but I've dabbled in other things. Um, did a bit of Star Wars, a bit of Call of Cthulhu. Yes. Um, and uh, I suppose the other large sort of epic campaign <clears throat> I ran was um, set in the sort of Lord of the Rings world, but using the um, the old Merp rules. You know, Middle Earth roleplaying by the now defunct Iron Crown Enterprises, Ooh. which actually used a bit of those um, old Rollmaster rules. It was a sort of um, sawn off version. But yeah, I suppose, um, however many years, 30 odd years I've been um, role playing and then just started a Dragon Age campaign last year, actually, it's um, last September. Nice. Um, after sort of enjoying the computer games uh, and I finished my big <laughs> Warhammer campaign. So yeah, that's, um, I, I suppose, yeah, writing wise, I've, I've not written, professionally but um for a long time uh, warhammer was out of print actually and um during those sort of dark years as, as those of us in the hobby call it um uh, there was a magazine um a sort of amateur magazine called warpstone but i contributed to that quite a bit you know i wrote an adventure and wrote quite a few sort of comment articles um, um so um i've done you know nice. I've, I've contributed done my bit <laughs> and certainly say so well, you're contributing today <laughs> No, yeah, happy to do so. Yeah, yeah. And as I say, you you you, you said how do you make great adventures? Of course, we're talking about epic, epic adventures. <laughs> mm, it's true. <laughs> I mean, it, it, they're all synonyms, they're... right? They all mean yeah. You know, we're just trying to tell a good story here. Well, I mean, epic does have a certain uh, sort of a lyrical yeah, quality to I mean, it. I suppose you're right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, know, you could have a good campaign where. You know, they're, they're, well, I suppose we'll get onto this, but you know, the players are all sort of level zero, sixteen-year-olds yeah, uh, in a village, you know, and and, and, it, and it ends up uh, the village under threat. You know, that can be a good cracking campaign, but you know, is it epic? So uh, I've been uh, concentrating on, you know, what what actually differentiates good, you know, and there's plenty of advice about making a good campaign. How do you take one up to an epic level? Is an interesting question in itself, I think. Excellent. I'm that's looking forward question. to talking about that. That's a that's an excellent point. I've been thinking a lot about. Uh, uh, honestly, every time I hear epic, I I mean I was an English teacher. I think things like Iliad and Odyssey, and so these long spanning narratives where people just gain ridiculous amounts of power. How do you keep those interesting, and how do you uh, maintain a certain amount of character development and character mm. dynamic when the powers that the characters themselves make them feel less human that's like, good uh, that good um gotcha. good point i'm looking forward to discussing it but yeah no, it'd be interesting to hear however people started off role-playing yeah oh mm-hmm. yeah hey uh andy where'd you where'd you cut your chops Ooh, uh, I got started i'm i'm 34 now i got started back in fifth grade uh, my nice. cousin Jason uh, got me started on, you know, similar to the uh, the fighting fantasy books, there was a series called Wizards, Warriors, and You. It was oh, kind of God. a choose-your-own-adventure mm-hmm. style of, um, 
of game as well as the uh the lone wolf novels by uh joe joe Devere. um i actually got to meet him at gen con prior to his death which was which was really something spiffy um he it was right when the the, the lone wolf adventure game premiered from cubicle seven so that was uh that was a pretty cool moment right there uh, nice. That led into uh, actually Heroes Unlimited was my first actual role playing game, uh, the the blue book from Palladium uh, in all its broken hot mess glory. Uh, nice. It's still a nostalgic favorite of mine, despite every good reason not to ever play that game. Hmm. Nice. Uh, I can understand that. But I still love it, and I still play it, and you know, off and on. Um, Really uh, started getting into D and D with uh, with Advanced Second Edition, the black books with the red red labels. Um, and mm-hmm. Went into third and started getting into other systems from there. Did some Star Wars, did some Call of Cthulhu. Um, started moving into uh, some other fantasy ser- and obviously and obviously when Dragon Age came out, I was I was on board with that. Um, started doing some writing for some various companies, uh, one of which was GameWit Games, a small independent press out of New Jersey for their game called Weggs, the wickedly errant gaming system. That sounds uh, cool. Weggs is kind of like if you played first edition D&D on an active casino table. That sounds oh, awesome. There's a, there's, a dis- there's a distinctive like betting element to it, and the, the, the GM is meant to be... Almost like, uh, almost like the you know, the the craps croupier, where you're right. you know trying to get people to, to double down on certain effects and the like. It's a it's definitely a unique little that animal. Fun. Man, it sounds good. Um, that got me started. Got my foot in the door. I did some writing and some editing for them. Uh, that got me started into looking into other venues. I've done some writing for Cubicle Seven. I mentioned them earlier on the Laundry Files RPG. Uh, I obviously wrote Cold Steel Wardens, my my baby. I'm working on a second RPG right now, Ooh. set uh, set during the between the first and second Crusades. Ooh. I've worked for a bunch of other companies. Uh, most recent most recent big thing though was um, I was part of the team that did the Investigators of Arkham Horror for Fantasy Flight Games. Ooh. Nice. One of my one of my former gamers from Cold Steel Wardens when she was still at university. She was one of my original playtesters. She was the uh, editorial lead for for that project, so she brought me on board, and I got to write about some of the some of the neat uh, characters from Arkham Horror. So I've got a couple chops, I suppose. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just maybe some chops. Well, dang! Now I feel like we should have gone first. Oh yeah. <laughs> to work up to the to the folk, to the folks who've had like thirty god years of gaming experience and written for several companies, and we've just got this little podcast over here. I mean, I've been I've I've been playing like I played stuff with Dad when I was you know eight nine years old, especially like those old uh, computer games like Betrayal at Crondor, and then of course Baldur's Gate and. All these games I played with Dad, and then I started playing tabletops in earnest 18 years ago when I was 12, and uh, no prizes for guessing how old I am, but uh, <laughs> I've been, you know, I played a little bit of ad and I played a lot of 3.0, like Living City, Living, Living Greyhawk, and uh, Greyhawk, and I played, uh, you know, I played, I went, moved into Pathfinder later on, I moved into 3.5 as well, uh, 
Just, I've done some GMing, but I find that it stresses me out. So I prefer to generally just be a player. And I play a little bit of Call of Cthulhu. I've definitely played Star Wars. Played the Saga Edition Star Wars. We're currently doing some of the new uh, Fantasy Flight Star Wars, mm. right? Like, right now. Not right this minute, but you know what I mean. And uh, I continue to just play those in Dragon Age and really anything else that kind of comes across my path. I like trying new RPGs, and so I try to do that as much as I can. Yeah. That's um, kind of it for me. I would guess that I probably started role-playing games back in high school. Um which is starting to sound like I'm... I, uh, well, you're the baby. We I'm definitely the, the baby, baby here. I'm always the baby. Um, but uh, I started back in high school when actually I had some friends. Uh, I had my, um, my brother's best friend, JD, was make, was trying to make a homebrew like Final Fantasy game. Oh, yeah. Um, he was actually like, trying to incorporate like as many Final Fantasies as he, he could into one big system. And we had a pretty good time with it. Um, and I think... And, um, it didn't really. I don't know if it really got that far. Because I think he wanted to like. I think he wanted to sell it to uh, or sell the idea to Square Enix. I don't know how far it was going to get, but it was it was a lot of fun. We had a good time, and then um, we actually they actually tried writing their uh, own system, making their own universe. So we played a little bit of that too. Um, um, and when uh, I, I tried uh, going to a role playing game. Uh, after school club where folks like uh, who my best friends were running Dungeons and Dragons. Is that third when you edition. got turned into a flesh golem? That right. That was um yeah that was I actually um I, I I had never played Dungeons and Dragons before so I tried out I'm gonna be an elf with a bow that sounds like fun um you know and something nice and simple and archetypal and then uh, so we I jump into this um big like multi table pirate campaign. Where all the groups are different uh, pirate crews uh, sailing the same ocean, and I eventually came across one of my friends, who uh, my, one of my one of my dearest friends, who was playing this flesh golem clockwork monstrosity that he had made, um, and who pulped me in a single blow, uh, and and he was like, no, 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 I'm gonna take your body. And turn you into a golem and give you this crazy cosmic power. And I'll pull out and he pulled out and started reaching for rule books. And I was like, I'm good. Thanks, guys. <laughs> and you didn't play for a while. I didn't play Dungeons until, and Dragons. Uh, or I'd say I didn't play anything, I think. Until for a we, while. Uh, until we started get like meeting up and everything, yeah. right? And yeah. then in college, I tried playing uh, Dungeons and Dragons with you uh, again because I wanted to meet you. Aww. And, um,. <laughs> Uh, and that, uh, it, the campaign did not go very well for my character, but we had a lot of well, fun. Well, me either. I mean, we all died. Uh, right. We all died in the end. Uh, Christopher Walken killed us all, I think. That was a strange day. That was a weird day. Christopher Walken? Yeah. He Chris summoned, I don't, he summoned Vrox, the Vrox danced, we didn't get away. It was... <laughs> it was, it was an interesting end to campaign. I, I'm not saying I understand how everything went down, I'm just saying this is how it happened. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> And then I, after I don't that, think anyone understands. Then <laughs> <laughs> um, after that, uh, I Logan showed us the Star Wars role playing game, and I had never actually run anything before, so I thought I'd give it a try. And the rest is history. And then so we got into Star Wars Saga Edition. And we had a huge, awesome campaign with that. Um, 
two huge awesome campaigns of that actually. Yeah. And then we tried the big uh, old Pathfinder yeah. campaign. We started the third Star Wars game that never quite finished. We started. We played Pathfinder. Tried Pathfinder Society. Still um, play Pathfinder Society. Still play Pathfinder Society very infrequently since Gen Con. Played yesterday. We did. Yeah. Uh, it's it's been too long. And then um, I, I picked up Dragon Age on a whim, and we had. And I, I took a look at it, and it was a lot of fun. We ran a campaign. I think we ran for about a year, took a hiatus, and we're going through it now very slowly because our players have all left us for greener pastures. Um, but I, once I started running Star Wars, I don't think I really stopped running games. Nope, it was meant to be. And that's how we got where we are today. Long meandering story that gets us where we are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I mean, we all have but to meet up at some point. This is the, like, the origins, you know, like everybody comes from oh, a yeah. different backgrounds. That's exactly. true. These are the uh, the chapters that are introducing all the characters. The GM's giving everybody an introductory scenario. Yeah. Pretty impressive session <laughs> zeros going on here. It's true. Um, so, uh, one of the first things that I thought we could discuss was uh, RPG stories versus other story forms. Um, because there are plenty of pointers for writing a good story, uh, but not all of them are great for RPGs because RPGs have different requirements. Uh, so we're going to be focusing mostly on uh, telling good stories in a role-playing game because, I mean, we're playing Dragon Age. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, the first thing to know is that uh, like RPGs are collaborative efforts. Uh, in regard to this, just a quick thing that oh. I have read on the internet that makes me think of this, and that oh. I was thinking of as we were building up to this, mm -hmm. is somebody posted, I want to run a D&D &D game, but I want to be the GM and run all the characters. And then second later, I have been informed that this is called writing a book. <laughs> and I think that that right there, while funny, is also the pivotal difference between writing an epic and role-playing out an epic. That's true. Because you, if you're not, you know, you're not writing the whole story you are helping to guide the story along with your fellow authors. That's, that's yes. right on the nose. And it involves a surrender of control. If you're a, if you're a control freak, you almost shouldn't be a GM mm -hmm. in some senses, because if you Absolutely. can't handle your players going in an entirely different direction, which they will do... <laughs> That is not an optional thing. That <laughs> is what happens. I mean, any GM who has done more than you three write... games can tell you that. If you're not okay with that happening, oh, you, you shouldn't write... be GMing. You will write a left path, a right path, uh, a forward path, backwards path, and even an underground path. They will somehow find a way to Fly. go to full, to go up, or they will find a way to go in some weird diagonal direction. So you're going in two directions at the same time somehow. Yep. They will find it, and they will gleefully <laughs> zip down that path. As a consummate player, can confirm. Yes. We like doing that. So, uh, you should. So you're going to have to walk uh, a very, uh, a somewhat thin line. Although I guess depending on the group, sometimes it's razor thin, and sometimes it's uh, a little wider. Mm -hmm. Just. The story that you want to tell and the story that they want to tell. Yeah, and I think, quite honestly, if you specifically want an epic, then you need to find players who also want to tell an epic. If you have players who mostly just want to mess around and be silly, and I mean, which can be actually a pretty fun part of an epic, honestly. It can bring some levity to an otherwise really huge concept. 
But if all they really want to do is, like, I don't know, steal vegetables from the nearby farm and then use them to put on elaborate puppet shows, that's not going to be a group that's going to really lend itself well to your campaign of epic, you know, storytelling. Yes. So, session zero it. Find people who want to play. Within the context of... Within make, the context of the, the Dragon Age video games, I think this is off. This is kind of sometimes where Dragon Age Two gets the short end of the stick because Origins is very much an epic. We are going to journey to far off locations, and we are going to amass power over time, and we're going to go from this lowly Grey Warden recruit to you know this world shattering hero Ferelden, mm-hmm. and. Dragon Age 2 is is not an epic. It's a Greek tragedy. It's, it's, true. it's true. Here, watch this family come to ascendance and then fall apart. Here, watch this city rise to the heights of power and then implode. You know, here, watch these people's fatal flaws become exposed over time and watch what happens at the end. Not everybody mm-hmm. is on board with both of those things. I mean, you may have a bunch of players who are like, I want to see my character get wrecked. I want to see my character, you know, I want bad things to happen to them. And then simultaneously, the person who's sitting beside them may be, I want to be the big hero. Mm -hmm. Understanding Mm -hmm. your player's motivations at the start can widen that very thin razor line towards telling a collaborative story. Definitely. I mean, um, you're... um... Your original question of thinking, um, Ren, about you know, what's the difference between role-playing epic stories, you know, campaigns, mm-hmm. which I, I suppose we really need to say the word campaign because um, yes, it's very rare you're going to get an epic story in a four to six hour you know, session. <laughs> so I suppose really <laughs> we're talking yeah. about you know, constructing uh, really good epic campaigns. And one, one way they're different, you know, role-playing campaigns are different. You say it's collaborative. It also means that the, the, the PCs... As a group, there tends not to be a sort of main character or leader, you know. So uh, in virtual fiction, you can think of from Conan the Barbarian to Elric to you know, Frodo, there's always going to be nearly always one character who's the main character. And in the, the Bioware computer games, you've got the hero of Ferelden, who's the, mm-hmm. the main character. You've got Hawk. You've got the Inquisitor. <clears throat> but um, in role-playing games... Um, it, it can happen. You can have one play. You have to agree at, at session zero. It's like, you know, you're the chosen one. Uh, you can have it where, you know, one player is a noble, the others are supporting them. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, nine times out of ten, it's sort of a party of equals. And that's very that's very rare in stories, isn't it? You know, <laughs> um, you don't tend to get five equals. Uh, you tend to get a main character and supporting characters, you know. Um, so that, I think that's one difference that thinking about it. Um, is worth you know pondering yeah and even with within like the seminal you know fantasy adventuring party even with you know like lord of the rings you you just can't put you know pippin on par with aragorn or or even frodo to a degree i mean one of them's the the king of the numenorians the 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 last uh, the new king of gondor and the other one's a a dude from the shire (laughs) and yes they they both undergo character um, character evolution throughout the series, but you can't you can't put them in the same bucket. It's so, true. so when you have a role playing game, I mean, you are putting 
everyone relatively in the same bucket. Very rare is the occasion where you'll get it a is player rare. saying, I want to be his sidekick. I want to be his, you know, his best friend. I want I want to be the second fiddle. Not saying it doesn't happen, but it's it's very much a rarity. Mm-hmm. It's true. I think that one possible opportunity for sort of mitigating that is to, you know, find out which players want to take on which roles. Like, when we did our giant Pathfinder campaign that spanned over, like, three years, oh, we had... 20 levels and 10 mythic tiers. Oh, rocket tag, if ever Ooh. there has been. But uh, it was it was amazing. But the thing is, we had players who wanted their characters to be more front and center, serious protagonists. And we had other characters who, while they wanted to have equivalent screen time, wanted to be more of the like the comic relief or wanted to be the one who like uh you know raises spirits in a different way or you know gains screen time but isn't necessarily the primary protagonist like maybe the most important comic relief but or or even saves the world in their own little unique part of the we had a lot of very strange things happen, is what I'm trying to say. But I think the key is if you have players who each sort of want to shine in a different way, make sure that you give them each their own sort of corner of the stage to shine on, and maybe their spotlights each look a little bit different. But that do. way you sort of, you know, if you've got everybody who wants to be the silent, serious protagonist, <sighs> you might have a hard time. But if you've got somebody who wants to be the, you know the righteous paladin and somebody else who wants to be the ridiculous summoner, for example, oh. then those two <laughs> things can coexist pretty peacefully, I found. I'm the lone wolf, te- oh, th- uh, loose cannon templar who doesn't play by the rules. Well, I'm the lone wolf chevalier, loose cannon oh. who doesn't play by the rules. That is that is a recipe for not an epic campaign and a whole <laughs> lot of people getting mad at each other. Oh, jeez. Mm-hmm. I think that um, your initial point as well, Jessica, was an interesting one about um, uh, the seriousness with which players need to take campaign. Um, mm-hmm. And I think um, I think certain games, you know, okay, the one I've got good experience of is like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. It was always a rather sort of tongue-in-cheek game, uh, essentially ridiculous. Um, and um, to a certain extent, you've got an epic campaign there where, you know, the, the world is at stake, shall we say, but the players can be cracking jokes or, I mean, I think about my players, making fart jokes or whatever it is as they're, as they're, as they're fighting. But um, <laughs> I think in other games, when, I, when I'd when i gone from a Warhammer campaign that, where the players did mess around a bit to pondering about running a Lord of the Rings campaign, I just thought, well, it's not going to work. You know, you can't have players cracking jokes all the time, you know, uh, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, or smutty jokes or whatever it might be. That, that You have to take, take certain um periods or, or, or game systems more seriously lord of the rings i think is i mean you know there is humor within it but it's generally a bit more po-faced and um and so i i, I made that clear to the players i said listen you know i know you'll, there will be humor and you will start falling into making jokes but i am going to be have more to be more firm with you and uh, say okay you know let's uh this is talking <laughs> concentrate yeah. guys and uh, and it usually worked, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a great way to put it. And you know, people would get into their character more, and uh, and you can there's little tips and ploys you can you can use and strategies to make people take things more seriously. So, in for example, in in my Lord of the Rings campaign, someone say would would not introduce themselves as "Hello, I'm I'm Athelorn." They would they would say, oh, "Greetings, I'm 
Amathalorn, son of Arathorn, you know, um, warden of the Western Marches. You know, so every time someone introduced themselves, they'd have to go through their, um, <laughs> you know, who who their father was, who what their father's responsibility is. You know what I mean? So quote the Silmarillion. <laughs> we did have uh, people writing poems and singing souls in songs in Elven and stuff as well, but uh, it was. Um, they, they, uh, but I don't think Dragon Age is as serious as, uh, as Lord of the Rings either, for that matter. But um, I agree oh, that yeah. you know, for for a different campaign setting, you need a different sort of seriousness level, I think. And um, but the time to get the players to buy into that is at session zero, indeed. Oh, I agree. I think that uh, the Dragon Age universe has a decidedly uh, sort of Joss Whedonite flavor to it. And I think that that because of, and that's been becoming, I think, more and more prevalent in gaming, simply because of the popularity of that sort of tongue-in-cheek, dry humor. Alistair. Alistair is actually known to be based off of a character from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. (laughs) And I think that that's part of finding that balance for Dragon Age specifically, is tapping into that without overdoing it. But uh, Andy, you had something you want to say? Well, just uh, just in terms of establishing that level of tone, it's a it's it's a it's a difficult balance to walk, uh, especially when you get into uh, topics and situations that that are particularly heavy. Like if you're if you're going to write a campaign centering on you know the Mage Templar War and how that uh, how that impacts Northern Orlay, for example, mm-hmm. and you know your your characters are dealing with you know, politics and, and a lot of heaviness. It can be a difficult Mm. thing to maintain that, especially, you know, when you're sitting at the table and it's 1030 at night and people are getting a little slap happy Mm. or, you know, or someone just showed off a YouTube video, which is not great gamer etiquette in the first first place that breaks that, that breaks that. Taking our eyes off the prize. (laughs) Exactly. But even to the side of that, um, it becomes a difficult thing as a GM when you're overly absorbed by that. I I run into this a lot with with Cold Steel Wardens because, you know, the big emphasis of that game is, you know, moral quandary and, you know, social justice. And what what does it mean to, you know, to put on a mask and decide to go fight crime and, you know. Uh, and it deals with things like race and gun violence and and issues that are not fun issues. And <laughs> inevitably, especially at conventions, there are certain times where where my games have admittedly have a tendency to descend into farce because something off the wall has happened that makes no sense given the theme, but that was in the hands of the players and that's, that's the direction things end up going. And that's, uh, that's the benefit of the drawback of the, of the collaborative storytelling model is the fact that within, you know, my grit, grim and gritty street level superheroes game, uh, where, you know, I have guys knocking off a mob casino and our vigilantes caught in the middle that in the, in the hecticness of that action, I have a character who, literally incapacitates a goon by hitting him with a walk full of noodles. <laughs> it's it's absurdity, but it's out of my hands. Mm-hmm. So being able to maintain that that sort of mood 
that you that you want as the GM that you agree to as this as the story zero. But sometimes you just got to come up for air. Mm. I agree. No, absolutely, you can't be a control freak. Yeah. Like you said at the beginning, you, you, the, the players will do other things, and they do need they do need to have a laugh. So you can't be completely po faced and start shrieking if they. Um, yeah, you know, if one of them smiles and or giggles at something, mm-hmm. uh, it sounds like a du- double entendre or something. You know, you've got to you've got to allow a certain amount. You have to be flexible, but mm-hmm. um, depending on the, um, the seriousness of of what you're, you know, yeah, you're right. You have to be flexible, basically. I think all things in moderation. Mm. Definitely, indeed, it's true for a lot of things, and I think it all also comes back to what Toby you were saying earlier about how you really have to have the word campaign in mind. Like, if you're at a convention, unfortunately, the expectation level that you can have for players who want to fit into the vision of an epic, like, an epic story is kind of zero. Like, you've, even if you find those people, you are going to be spending maybe four or five hours with them tops. And so that opportunity is just not going to get to come up. And that is one of, I think, kind of the flaws of convention play. But in the in the end, it you know it is what it is. So you you know, the flexibility just is so important throughout all of it. Definitely, um, and uh, thankfully, Dragon Age actually has a little thing called goals that you oh, are hopefully yeah. getting your players <laughs> to write two short terms and a long term. Uh, on average, you, if you're going for especially if you're going for a longer campaign, you probably want a few more. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, update them as they change. Definitely update them as they change, or as they, uh, or as they uh, refocus what they want, or uh, if they start accomplishing those goals. So, um, don't forget that Dragon Age offers you, basically offers GMs a roadmap, um, because the uh, players can take those goals, and you can learn a lot about uh, not only who the character is, but what the player wants for that character based on the goals that they write. So pay very close attention to those and kind of get an idea of uh, what story they want to tell uh, through their through uh, their own character. And um, definitely try and, uh, uh, if you can't find goals that have commonalities between the PCs, uh, especially if the goals kind of have very differing levels of theme, like if one PC like wants to learn Elven, and I want to go to my brother's wedding, and I want to go like uh, make lots of money, and I want to go learn how to make Gatlock. I want to want to buy a nice horse, and then there's one guy who's like, I want to bathe in the heart's blood of this jerk for everything he's done to me. Maybe, <laughs> maybe try and encourage the PCs to write goals and have themes that match mostly. Yeah, that that helps. We were fortunate with our Dragon Age campaign, at least by the time we got to the more serious stuff, Mm -hmm. the characters all had goals that were easily intertwined. Yes. I don't want to call it, like, best practice, because that makes it sound like we're doing work, which we are not. We are having fun. But one of the things that I've had a lot of success with over the years is, you know, my my players are, they take care of their character sheets. That's their business, not mine. But... After we do our session Mm. zero, and usually after we had our first actual session, you know, whatever, you know, the intro adventure is going to be, whatever investigation has brought us together, I I will spend, you know, one week between sessions, and I will take their character sheets. Because for me as a GM, 
I can then say, okay, well, what are the goals, not just necessarily the, the goals that they've written underneath the goals section, but what are the goals they have for this character mechanically? If someone is writing something on a character sheet, gotcha. if they are, if they are taking that idea and putting into writing, that should be a signpost for me as, as a writer, as a creator of this world that they're going to be in of what they want to do in that world. If someone makes a Dragon Age rogue and they they're investing into stuff like cryptography or you know uh, or uh, a, a lot of stealth, I want to build in challenges where that focus in cryptography is going to actually be useful. Oh, there's a coded message we have to intercept. You know, what does it actually mean? Aha! I'm good at that. It reinforces the fact that these are the main characters. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, if if the if the dwarven warrior, for some reason, the dwarven warrior picked up bows as as one of his weapons. Okay, well, why is the dwarven warrior? Did he just want a ranged option, or did he want? Is there some reasoning? Hey, I want to learn more about other cultures. This seems like a neat way to do it. Uh, that's a that's a way for you as the GM to engage that that player in terms of something that might only seem very subtle on the character sheet, but that's a signpost to what they want to do over the course of that game. I think that's absolutely true. Absolutely. I think that that can even, if you've got a particularly story-driven group, that can even be taken farther into, you know, have one-on-one chats with the players. Ask them, you know, what do you want to get out of this story? Where... What do you see as, like, what are the character arcs that you're hoping for, if any? What are some things that you want to see your character challenged by? What do you... And, of course, if you've got a large party, this can be a bit difficult. But if you have a smaller party and you're more able to really focus on the strengths and the failings and the dynamics of each individual character as they develop, you're, uh, if you trust your players and tell them, hey, I want to know what you see for this character in the future, how do you want to challenge them, and how do you want to use this to build a greater narrative, then your players are, especially if they're the kind who want to tell a big story, they're, they will rarely disappoint you. Mine certainly haven't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and especially if you can get your players aside for that kind of thing, um, Maybe uh, you might consider sharing a couple of campaign secrets with them. Maybe some things that you that uh, be, maybe only their character knows about, or uh, things that would be very important to their character's story, so that the player can have some uh, advanced notice to know uh, for like events that are coming up later, so they can like prepare a response, or mm-hmm. even um, maybe even like start playing the scene up along with you and the other players are looking at both of you like hey, exactly what's that's going been, on that's here? been fun i've done that a couple times but uh the, you know the the downside to that is not knowing you know or is not getting the surprise element for that character for that player but the upside is that player has a lot of time to think about how not they would respond because it's very easy to respond as yourself in the moment but they have time to really think about the impact of that on their character's psyche and how their character would most likely respond and which of those responses is best to tell a good story? Mm-hmm. Uh, John Wick of the uh, you know Play Dirty and uh, Legend of Five Rings and Seventh Sea fame phenomenal. He is he is my GMing spirit animal. Um, 
had a lot to talk about that idea of open secrets because uh, for any experienced GM, I think one of the one of the banes that people have is I'm the mysterious loner oh. and no one knows my oh, backstory God. or my motivation, and, you know, and they're they're <laughs> inscrutable. And unless and of course you know they the hook is the player wants oh well you know you're not engaging my backstory. Well, <laughs> you haven't revealed enough about your backstory for people to start investigating it to have it show up in the in the in the actual story at large. You haven't allowed your fellow players engagement with it. So, so why should when they? you have that type of mysterious loner archetype, you really take that session zero and say, "Look, my character has this big, powerful secret. Yes. We're gonna drop some hints for this." Don't look into this, wink, wink, wink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that way, that way you can get that. In that way, you can get that payoff eventually. Where, oh, my secret's exposed. Woe is me, angst and you know, sturm und drang. <laughs> nice. Yes, and I think that is what takes that sort of you know mysterious edge lord character and turns them into an actual like really useful part of a story. They can be a valuable part of the what a twist sort of moment oh, yeah. if they're as long as it's the character doing that and the player not doing that like there's a difference i had uh i had this actually come up in um the cold steel wardens game i'm currently running i had a character who she has this mis she have of course has amnesia so oh i can't remember these these horrible things in my past and she gave me this huge backstory Tons of detailed information, which I've been at man at managed to weave into the plot. Nice. But she's been very evasive with all the other players and characters at the table. So it was a gut punch to them when one of the major adversaries in the campaign said, yeah, we were working on this until you left. Oh. oh. Da -da so uh, they now have um, some questions to ask her when... when uh, we return from the Thanksgiving holiday. Oh, man. Oh, boy. That's going to be rough. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the point, though, is that at the root of all of this, at the root of all storytelling, and I, I can't take credit for this idea. Um, I studied abroad in, in England, actually, in Liverpool uh, for uh, for a semester, and I had I took a course in Chaucer's narrative verse. And the professor that I had there, I only ever saw him for two classes. I don't even remember his name because he had a heart attack and there was a, you know, he went on medical leave and I never saw him again. But he said something that, that stuck in my brain and that kind of drives how I tell stories and how I create things for RPGs. And, and he said, conflict is at the root of all literature. After all, what would King Lear be like if they all just sat around saying past the cornflakes? <laughs> uh, well, you, you have to have some some conflict there has to be a tension that eventually reaches ahead and then gets resolved because if you don't have that if you don't have the engagement with the mysterious loner and start finding out the clues behind their backstory it's it's worthless it's 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 not a story that's being told it's just scenery yeah mm -hmm. exactly and that think, that conflict has to be at the center of everything you do, and 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 the best stories I feel this is again total personal opinion. The best mm -hmm. stories 
have multiple levels of conflict. And in, in Dragon Age, you see that. We have conflict between nations, but we have conflict between mages and Templars. We have, we have racial conflict. We have, you know, societal and class conflict. We have tons of, uh, tons of opportunities where people's motivations are not black and white. And that's, I think, what makes the setting really awesome. You don't want... You don't want too much conflict between your party members, though. That's the only uh, that's the only proviso I'd add in. I mean, in the um, in the computer games, it's okay <laughs> if I don't know. You can boot out Sarah, or you know, Fenris might storm off. But <clears throat> if you're actually talking about your players, um, um, that's when campaigns collapse. <clears throat> and uh, I've been, you know, pretty close to that in the past. Uh, um, is when you know, and again, going back to the beginning, isn't it? That's when you want your your. It's good to have a party who are connected in some way, you know, who owe each other something or have some connection beyond just being effectively mercenaries uh, riding around <clears throat> seeking coin because eventually if their uh, motivations conflict, um, you can get people wanting to do different things. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, we can, I've seen over the years um, characters take up arms against each other, you know, and virtually start fighting each other and, you know, arguments and people blaze, blazing arguments people walking out of gaming rooms and stuff so um that will um destroy that can destroy campaigns or so um you have to be um you have to be careful on that front you know um you want a bit of a bit of something is good but you need you need to be linked they need to be linked um but um Mm -hmm. try to it's difficult it's difficult sometimes to avoid player characters arguing with each other um um, um, one of those things yeah being judicious is the key one of the ways that, that I've worked with that and, and kind of, I don't want to say steered into the skid, but, you know, kind of embraced that idea within, within Cold Steel Wardens was the idea of stances, mm. uh, which, is, which were just first-person philosophical statements. What does your character believe in? You know, so in terms of Dragon Age, does your character believe in the Maker? What do they feel about the Chantry? You know, who do... You know, how do they feel about the Mage Templar War? Do they think a side is right? Do they think do they think that you know both sides are at fault, or you know do they sympathize with one over the other? How do they feel about elves? You know, there are any number of issues there that Dragon Age as a setting grapples with and put forward those big epic conflicts, those big clashes that chances are your party members are not all going to agree on. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah, you ha- you absolutely have to have the underlying social contract at your table where our characters may disagree, the actions that happen within the context of game may favor one or favor the other, but we as people are going to have fun with this and enjoy it, not be mad at one another because of what happens within a fictional mm. space. Mm-hmm. Good luck Gotta with that. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's, not not. Easy, it's not an easy thing to walk. It really isn't. Um, but that's the, that's the peril of collaborative storytelling, is the fact that not everybody is on board all the yeah. time. Yeah, and sometimes you have to boot out. Sometimes as a GM, if you want to maintain an epic campaign, you might have to boot out player. Uh, if everyone's complaining, saying this, you know, we don't understand why our characters would be going around with this guy. All he ever does is stitch us up or get us into trouble. You know, you have a word with him. Um, it's not working. Then uh, it's time to say, you know, 
cheerio. Uh, it might be worth trying another group. Or well, it's difficult when you, if they're people are your friends as well. You know, when you have to start saying, ah, oh, you know. Yeah, there is one of my friends who I will not play a you know a horror style or a serious style game with because the attitude he carries into a role playing game is typically one that's absurd. Um, we, we sat down to run a, run a game of icons at one point, and he ended up running a, 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 a chef who could control people's emotions through sandwiches. Isn't there huh. a movie like and that? <laughs> the the only one I can think of is mystery the- man, you know, but <laughs> it's, and if you're going to run a crazy off the wall, silver age one shot, that's great. But if I'm going to run a long-lasting epic campaign where where there are tough moral choices and there are definite conflicts and really you know bad villains, no, no, Sandwich Man is not going to fit that genre, <laughs> and that player probably is not the guy who I want to have at the table with me as we sit down, right, to play that sort of game. So yeah, you've got to know your audience. You've got to know who you're going to be working with. Got to screen the authors. Mm-hmm. Yep. I uh, I think that when it also comes to uh, character conflict, one thing that I've done in the past to great effect is if you suspect that another player's character is going to come into conflict with yours, talk with that player ahead of time and work together to, like, build the fight before it happens. Like, even oh, yeah. script it a little bit. Like, and that takes that chance for, you know, where it blows up and neither of you are ready and, you know, negative feelings in character become negative feelings for players. To it, it takes it to this space where, you know, it looks dramatic. The, uh, the points are more prepared, so it looks more like the characters are interacting more uh, organically, in a sense. And at the end, you and the other person can just, like, quietly high-five and be like, yeah, we're good at this. It takes mm-hmm. that. It sort of puts the players on the same side while pitting the characters against each other, and I think that that, in particular, has been one of the most effective ways that I've been able to do, like and represent PvP sort of conflict. Oh, absolutely! That's great advice. You do have to definitely screen for people who are down for that kind of thing. Oh yeah, um, but I mean, but that's th- that's just part of the beginning whole thing. Like right, right. find people who are going to be the audience and the collaborators that you want them to be. Mm. It's true. No one-upsmanship, no sandwich men, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just, you know, he's not the, I mean, he's a great player, but he's not the guy that I'm going to go play Call of Cthulhu with. Because that's, right. that's not the type of game that he enjoys, and the type of character that he mm. brings is not going to help me tell that sort of, you know, brooding horror story. Mm-hmm. Um, something that I actually found works very well for our Dragon Age campaign specifically um, is, um, I mean, Dragon Age has got plenty of choices. And, oh, yes. Um, choices can be great for things, for things like conflict or setting the right, uh, setting the right mood. Um, and Dragon Age usually has, like, two or more choices that don't feel, that, like, both... You can save the girl or get the money. You can't necessarily but do you both. You can't get both. Yeah, and you know, taking one means you sacrifice. It means you lose the other, uh, or even like. So I found something that works very well in my campaigns, especially recently, is um, giving the players, uh, see, or at least uh, 
maybe like writing those choices. This is actually something that Bioware does normally is giving choices that they don't really expect the players to have or to make. Uh, or, and even if they do, it's they, they track the metrics and a lot of folks do. But having that choice there in the first place makes makes it a lot more meaningful for uh, for the players and for and for the GM. Um, but, but what can be really meaningful for them is uh, giving them those choices, but letting them mold those choices themselves, kind of like find additional options and be ready for those additional options because they will definitely show up. Um, but something, but because I know my players, I know mm-hmm. that they're going to do this. I always prepare a third option where they can try to take both things they can try to uh, think succeed at both. Right. The most recent example was um, Callian was. Uh, I think I helped write this one. Yes, you did. Callian. Uh, um, let's see. The group is you know going to war with uh, demons and reavers in the Black Marsh, and uh, uh, the crisis point of the first phase of the mass combat is uh, there is a necromancer who is raising an undead army to supplement the other army. Um, we know where the necromancer who is raising them is, and. Callian is uh, shadow uh, duelist, so she's like, I'll go, I'll go bump him off the board. Um, when she gets there, she finds that her apprentice, uh, this little twelve-year-old gal who wants to, who really wants to impress her, has followed her into the thick of it, uh, and is getting stuck in the black marsh mud and is being approached by zombies from behind. So she is given the choice. Uh, I gave her the choice of, you may choose. To not save your protege, but automatically kill this boss. You may choose to save your protege and get out of there, but fail the crisis point. Or, we go into initiative, and you try to do both. And uh, having that much harder, but still possible third option, I think, can often take away the irritation, I think, that can come with being like, here are two options. You get to pick one, and you can be like, but I can think of a way that I can do them both. Nope! One or the other. This is storytelling. Like, I think that is part of the trusting your players to come up with something dynamic along with you, and something that's still going to be meaningful while not railroading them entirely. This is uh, something that I always point to when telling folks about the fact that Dragon Age has a role-playing game. It's like, did you agree with Loghain? Weirdo. You could do that if you wanted to in the role-playing game. Like, you could go to Logan and say, you know what? I think you made the right choice. Let's work together on this and let's fix Pharrell, save Ferelden from whatever is going on right Clearly, now. Clearly, Orle is more important than the, uh, the Archdemon. Well, that's an interesting. Um, that's an interesting question as well. Which is, would that become? Um, would that become epic, or is that a sort of different type of game? He's taking the dark path. Um, Ooh, sort yeah. of Dragon Age, you know, because ultimately, you know, the, the, he's called a hero. Well, mm. she, the hero for Elden for a reason, I suppose, isn't it? You know, so um, the Inquisitor could, I don't know, take all the money. Let's be honest, and um, and head off. Um, <laughs> take all the money the Inquisition makes and, and head off, but they don't. They they stick around to take down Corypheus, I suppose. Um, I think I would say mm. that although it's a dark, fancy role playing game, for an epic campaign. Generally speaking, I think the players, you should aim for a sort of generally a good group of players who will do the right thing. Uh, I think... Um, I agree. I think yeah, and, uh, a key I, part I do of agree. an epic is I that think conflict. your um, point about the choices, actually. I've written a few notes down in preparation, and um, I totally agree that this idea of having to choose 
uh, and being quite explicit about it. You know, you can either do this, you can do the other. It's a big part of Bioware computer games, a big part of Dragon Age, and um, it should be a part of any um, Epic Dragon Age campaign. And I haven't got a problem with your, you know, the third option where you try to do both. But I do think, actually, that um, I think sometimes you should just make two. Uh, not very often, perhaps, but I think there have to be two unpalatable choices. You know, it's, it's like it reminds me when I was um, playing Dragon Age 2. It's like, well, I don't, I don't want to choose the Templars or the Mages. I want to choose both. I want to, you know, there must be a third way. <laughs> and there isn't. It's like, I think Meredith says, no, no, you have to choose. Mm-hmm. And um, I think now and again, you throw in a binary at them just to remind, <laughs> just to say, this is it, folks. This is Dragon Age. You know, you, you don't get to sort mm-hmm. of, um, right. you don't get to have the happy ending. It's, uh, you're going to annoy someone or one group of it here are going to die. The werewolves or the, or the elves, you know? <laughs> right. Um, and yeah, I, we, we know I there's remember a correct the answer first there, time. right? <laughs> right. Yeah. I remember the first time I played Dragon Age 2, and it just so happened that I stumbled into the, uh, the dialogue tree where I had managed to rally, like, all of the, the Kirkwall nobility to my side, and they were prepared to name me Viscount. You know, and of course, you know, the end of Dragon Age 2, the, the Chantry blows and war breaks out. And I'm sitting there facing Anders, of course, who is <sighs> sitting in front of you. Yup, I did it. And you have that you have that choice in front of you. Do you let him go or do you kill it? And I'm not a violent person by any stretch of the imagination, but... All I could think in role-playing, you know, my hawk at that point was, you son of a gun, I almost had this fixed. Had you waited ten minutes, I could have stopped all of this, so I let him have it. That's fair. Mm Mm-hmm. And that, you know, I I agree in the sense that this makes great storytelling. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... It does take us further afield, though, from from what we traditionally think of as as the epic. Though this is this mm-hmm. is to me where I mentioned, you know, I look Great at tragedy. I look at Dragon Age Two as more of like a Greek tragedy where you are watching the rise and then the fall of a great man, um, mm-hmm. or woman, as it I, happens. <laughs> the I mean, you, you've got the uh, the choice in um, in Inquisition, haven't you? Between you know, who do you leave in the fade? Uh, oh yeah, oh, so that's, a, that's a binary choice, you know. And if it was a role-playing game, you'd be, you know, there wouldn't be that choice, would there? Most role-playing games would be, oh, we'll both, we'll all try to get out, you know. I'll, I'll hold it up, you know. Whereas in that, you know, and this is why I say, perhaps epic is the wrong word. But it might be better to say to give a Dragon Age flavor to a campaign, to mm-hmm. uh, to ensure that it yeah. feels mm-hmm. like Dragon Age. You need to have some choices, and some of those choices need to be unpalatable binary ones, where either way hurts. Um, that's, I guess that's a better way of putting it. It doesn't necessarily make it epic, but it sort of gives it the signature of Dragon Age. Mm. It, it, it gives it impact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the key But there... let's be real. Who, how many Strouds made it out of the fade? <laughs> Mine did, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Interestingly. <laughs> yeah, well, I was, I, it, was, uh, it was absolutely gut-wrenching, but I was taking it from a role-playing perspective. I thought, my Inquisitor doesn't know the you know, Hawk from Adam. Fair enough. Um, and, you know, Hawk, Hawk volunteered to begin with, and then Stroud said, oh, no, I'll go. And then Hawk said, well, no, you need to rebuild the Wardens. And my Inquisitor's thinking, well, yeah, he does need to be rebuilt the Wardens, doesn't he? You know, sort of, um, mm-hmm. Hawk's got it down. And <laughs> although from a play- as a player, 
I, I, I wanted to leave Stroud behind. I thought my Inquisitor <laughs> would leave Hawk. Um, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I can't say I blame you. <laughs> I think the key to these uh, dual, like these binary choices is that it's going to be frustrating for the players if you present them with a binary choice that they think that they realize that they could otherwise solve if it weren't being called, you know, like a binary choice trademark. Like, obviously having, you know, you have to leave someone behind in the fade. In that moment, it is abundantly clear that someone kind of needs to stay behind. Like, you could try, you'd probably all get killed. Like, that's one of those moments where you can't really control it. But if, for example, you have, like, I'm trying to think of a good example, but if you have two unpalatable options and there's an actual, clear, understandable path where it's like, well, I could very easily have a good shot of doing both of these if I just push the save both button, which obviously wouldn't be that simple, but if there's a problem with the solution that is kind of clear that might actually cause you to be able to do both, it's going to be frustrating to your players to be sort of railroaded in that regard. Oh, of course, yeah. You just don't from the to, player perspective. Yeah, you don't want to use it wantonly, and, and you have to be very careful when you do it, and it shouldn't be very regular either. The binary choice should be very regular, but mm -hmm. um, at the right moment, it certainly gives, you know, uh, the Dragon yes. Age flavor. Um, yeah. No doubt about that. Uh, and there's I various agree. other things as well. Especially when, you're, uh, especially when your players are willing to take that... Time, that timeout, you know, that section like, okay, our characters are in the moment, we've got 30 seconds to choose, is it going to be, you know, the hostage or the villain, or is it going to be you know, one, uh, you know which of these two things, we can only go one route you know, when your players are willing to say, alright, hold on, and then have that discussion at the table, that's great tension and that can be great fun um, but yeah, I mean, has to be done mm. with with great, great foreknowledge and great judiciousness. You have to be very careful. About and um, you also will probably have to make sure that you get some player buy-in mm. to, and, and like maybe even reassure the players, guys, I'm not trying to screw you over with this. Uh, it's just, just go with it. Trust me. Uh, and we'll see, we're going to, we're going to try, I'm trying to tell a good story. I'm trying to tell a good story and I'd like you guys to help me. Um, mm -hmm. That and honestly, that you could use that for just about everything that we've been talking about, but uh, especially for things like uh, that can be kind of polarizing, especially like the binary choice. Um, there is the point that when you're making the binary choices in the video games, there's one player mm -hmm. who makes that choice. If you do a binary choice when you've got four players and you've got them like split down the middle, that can create some excellent conflict if your players you know buy into it and they're going to be mature about it and try and role play it out and role play out maybe even like they become so torn that they end up making neither choice and then they lose everything um but especially for the fact that this is a role-playing game compared to the dragon age video games where there's one player choosing as opposed to uh four or five maybe even six players choosing um, that's something that's something to watch out for. Though so your your own example was a good one. So you you isolated one player character, and it was yes. that single player character had the choice. And mm -hmm. uh, of course, yeah. even in the um, even in the computer games, the um, the NPCs do chip in. 
So, uh, funnily enough, about the Anders thing, you know, I was I was going to ex- effectively exile Anders and just say, get the hell out of here. And then Sebastian Vale piped up and said, what? You know, we have the murderer right in front of us, you know. Uh, and that persuaded me to actually say, well, actually, right, I will execute um, Anders, you know. So, um, but I think yeah, your your example is a good one. In that it's one player making that choice. And that's perhaps worth mm-hmm. bearing in mind when you're crafting these mm-hmm. and, and planning them in advance. If you have an, uh, an, an equal number of players, then yeah, you don't want it to go two and two and, and sort of provoke an art. You could, you could end up with a party fracturing mm-hmm. over a binary choice uh, if it's ha- handled wrong, isn't it? You know, you, you could you could easily say, well, That's I'm true. not, I'm not adventuring with these guys. Why would my character do that? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. yeah. true. That's <laughs> true. Communi- communication mm-hmm. and caution, everybody, mm-hmm. and just use them to play up those ca- play up the character uh, mm-hmm. more than just like more than just like playing up. Uh, say, this is yes. a hard choice. Just play up the fact that this is the choice that this character made. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And build off that. That's key. That's key. Not to let the story become bigger than... I mean, the story has to be big, but when you're making choices for the story mm-hmm. ahead of the characters, you're going to lose sight of the story altogether because the story is the characters. Mm-hmm. They're the main characters. All right. Wow. Um, is Good there, job, everybody. Right. Is there... Uh, any, are there any... See, um, I kind of mentioned uh, like writing down a couple extra notes. Is there anything you guys would like to add before we start closing this up? We got a little high concept um, there, but the one thing I, could, I think I think it's a good discussion. But yeah. uh, go ahead. The one thing I could see on here that we didn't get to is the idea of the epic villain. Oh yeah! Because this is a problem that a lot of role playing games mm-hmm. have. Because our first instinct, and this is regardless of whatever role playing game that we started with, is it's the bad guy. Roll initiative. <laughs> That we want, we see him, we want Ooh, to fight. Yeah, him. that's dangerous. The best villains that we get, regardless of media, are the ones that we are exposed to multiple times. Yes. And because of the nature of the role playing game, where it's get him, <laughs> you know, yep, that that tends to be a very difficult thing to reconcile, and. Depending on genre, you know, it's easier to get around that oh, with, with within superheroes of like, oh, well, he has a personal teleportation device. And, you know, you might be able to get away with that once or twice before that before that becomes cheesy. But as the GM, I think you have a responsibility to provide adversary an adversary or adversaries that are refeatured, yeah. are sympathetic and are good foils for the oh, people yeah. that you have yes. at the table. Not just Absolutely. not just character-wise, but also player-wise. Mm-hmm. Because that villain's going to get under their skin. Yeah. Not just as a character, because it's the character's job to go fight that guy. But you, you almost want to tailor that, that epic villain to your actual players as like, what is going to drive so-and-so up a wall? <laughs> what is going to make your players hate this guy? And it's not Love necessarily a matter of, oh, he kicks puppies, but what is going to what is going to motivate them as both character and player to 
I'm going to find this guy, I'm going to hunt him to the ends of the earth, and when I find him, I will end him. Exactly. One thing that I think can really help with this, um, just from, you know, you were talking about one of the problems is that players will look at the bad guy and go roll initiative. Yeah. Uh, one thing that mm. I've seen work effectively in this, it requires a little bit of disbelief, is sort of what I like to think of as the JRPG solution, which is, at the beginning, you know, even if you've already got buffs or whatever, you have a cutscene. You have to have a cutscene with the villain. And uh, it doesn't run down the time on anybody's buffs. It doesn't run down, uh, you know, it doesn't wreck anybody's starting time for the combat. It just gives the villain and the PCs a chance to throw barbs at each other, basically. And mm -hmm. that is a quick and effective way to build a solid antagonistic relationship is to, you know, by allowing that cutscene at the beginning of a fight where just that few extra rounds of combat that would otherwise have, uh, you know, it would have otherwise just been go. And then none of that interaction with the villain and none of that sort of uh, development between the characters would have taken place because tactically that's not a sound choice. Well, it doesn't have to be throwing barbs at the PCs either. It could be a cutscene um, where you're, they're just getting background on what the villain's doing. You know, he might be discussing them, mm -hmm. discussing his plans. And of course, you know, again, giving the, the Dragon Age flavor, that's exactly what happens mm -hmm. in Dragon Age Origins when you see clips of Loghain uh, as the um, mm -hmm. Ferelden is marching towards Denerim. You get cutscenes with um, Loghain talking to his daughter, you know, doing this, that, and the other, uh, sending the assassins off uh, to kill him. So, you know, you're, you're, you're actually doing two things. You're giving a bit more flavor uh, about the uh, the villain um, and always or the villain's henchmen of course you know I mean the problem with some villains is they're not um, you know, very sympathetic Corypheus isn't very sympathetic um, uh, uh, mm -hmm. he really, he's, he's a force of nature kind of villain mm -hmm. yeah so uh, but you know what you want is and that's why they did it is, is yes. the, the um, his lead henchmen mm -hmm. are, are sympathetic so Calpurnia or Samson you know so um the uh, the arch enemy can some the more interesting mm. enemy can sometimes be one of the henchmen and uh, i agree with uh, with andy it's a good idea to try to get some facet that they have that sort of uh, really grates on uh, and draws out the hatred of a pc but uh, and but that can be done with multiple henchmen as well so you can have multiple baddies uh, you know each one can become almost an arch enemy of a single pc you know mm -hmm. you, you could have a situation where we had some PC stuff similar to that as an enemy. And I, I don't think they necessarily have to be sympathetic. Although the the, the best example of a of a sympathetic villain is going to be Solus, isn't it? You know. Uh, oh, hang on, spoilers, spoilers, of... spoilers. Oh, <laughs> you can add them, add them, add them, uh, add them later. But yeah, Solus will be the perfect sympathetic villain because he's uh, you can completely oh, understand where he's man. coming from. But I, I think was what definitely you do thinking need... about him this entire time and about how much <laughs> I dislike him and like what? to dislike him. What you do need, I think, is, some, is a sort of understandable villain, at least, whose motivations are sort of logical, um, which Corypheus is, you know. Um, um, so it's like, okay, I, I get where he's coming from. He wants to do this rather than a sort of, I want to rule the world. You know, it's, it, it's better if um, it's better if he's got some, you can see where he's come from, you know, the journey he's made, even if he doesn't end up being a bit black and white like Corypheus, um, who's probably the least um, grey of, uh, of the... Um, Dragon Age villains, I'd say. He's right, yeah. He's definitely more a force of nature kind mm -hmm. of villain than, uh, let's see, than, and, and than a relatable, than, a, than like a narrative of, villain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, on the um, on other points before we 
we end. I thought, again, things that differentiate Dragon Age epic campaigns for me is um, one thing that um, crops up time and time again, and I think this needs to feature in, a, in an epic campaign, is this idea of building alliances and solving conflicts. Mm. Um, it's a theme of the computer mm-hmm. games. Oh, yeah. So yes. it tends to be that, you know, to, to defeat some enemy or threat, you need to get a coalition of the willing who are a group of disparate forces, many of whom were initially at each other's throats. And uh, so there's a lot of peacemaking in, um, in the Dragon Age world and a lot of um, alliance crafting. Um, and as we already alluded to, um, lots of difficult mm-hmm. choices, you know, so I think some of these alliances and solving of conflicts should lead to one of those sides in a warring faction, basically maybe having to be chosen over another, you know, so you get to choose who the winning faction mm-hmm. is and they join your alliance. Uh, you won't always be able to um, get both sides um, joining you. Um, and <clears throat> again, one of the um, things you mentioned was that sort of, the difficult path mm-hmm. against the easy path. Um, so I think uh, an epic campaign should have questions, of, lots of questions about, you know, do the means justify the ends? Um, do we want to take the safe option, the quick option, or are we going to get a lot more involved and uh, try to get the, you know, the benefits? Um, um, I'd, I'd have thought those, I think those themes are good. And mm-hmm. I suppose I'm running through all my, all my ideas at the end here, but um, I think you know, the way, um, organizations in um in the dragon age uh, pen and paper rpg you know you get local and regional and world mm-hmm. yeah i love that system so to a certain extent i think you know you need for an epic campaign you need quite high level stakes so um in dragon age origins mm-hmm. the stakes were effectively at least for Elden, quite possibly world against the fifth blight inquisition again extremely high level stakes um Dragon Age 2, it's the sort of fate of a city, I suppose. I mean, it seems to me the more classic um, campaign, if you're thinking of pen and paper campaign, is a bit like Dragon Age Awakening, actually, where you have an adventure that leads to saving a city, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're going to do that, when you, if you want high stakes, mm-hmm. I think you want at least a city being threatened, uh, personally. Um, and to make, it more, to make it more meaningful, whatever mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. under threat in your campaign, you want to give the players stake in it uh, it's no point yeah. it's no point having oh Let's you know say, you're gonna uh, heavy as the head that oh, wears yes. the crown yeah or you know like oh you all come from Ferel and then you you sail over to uh, Rivain and then uh, you just arrived in this city and, and it's under threat and what are you going to do to save it these guys don't know anything about Rivain they don't know this city they don't know anyone in it you know so whereas if you make it there you know something close to them or if it's a you know, you've got a party of daily shells and it's their settlement then they'll have a much more of a stake mm. In, um, in trying to protect it. Um, oh, yeah. I think the other, the other thing I'd say is um, I think Dragon Age is one of the few games that um, can work quite well if you if you set up to have a, a player character die at the end. Oh, yeah. Um, very I think true. A theme of sacri- I think it's very, it's very rare. hardly ever happens. I mean, you do get play, you know, particularly in, say, Call of Cthulhu, where you get total party kills all the time and <laughs> a sort of rolling... You know, oh, who, you know, I've got, I'm onto my fifth character sort of business. You know, but you don't want, you don't want that. But if there was ever a game, an ever epic campaign that could use one player character right at the end, sacrificing themselves so that the end can be achieved, um, it's or it's Dragon all Age. Of them doing it. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, well, that's mm-hmm. I, I, um, yeah. one of my original. Before I started this Inquisition campaign, 
my idea was to run one set before um, Dragon Age Origins, where all the PCs become Grey Wardens right. and they all die at the Battle of Ostagar, you know, and that's the end of the campaign, you know. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Basically, oh. them, you know, investigating the architect oh. and discovering, yes, there is a, there is a, 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 a blight coming and, you know, they're, they're, Duncan is helping them, they're rallying this force and they get this enormous army and then, you know, they, they basically go down swinging and the players are going, what? <laughs> Just throwing ogres at them and, and one by one they go down. It's like, right, there's your backstory, guys play dragon age origins you know oh anyway, that's, man, that's cool i like that yeah death has a has a strange place in in terms of the epic because you know mythologically you know so many of you know the epic of gilgamesh you know mm. hercules they end with the hero's death so mm -hmm. if that's what we're building towards within the context of a dragon age game you know going out fighting the arch demon or going out driving some horror back into the back into the fade i mean that's a phenomenal mm. end to a campaign there uh, but you've got to you've got to build it up to to have that level of emotional resonance to have that level of weight so when the the thing happens you know you want to have the remainder of the the party's jaws hitting the floor so to speak mm. uh, as you know so and so descends back into the rift or you know breathes their last oh. so, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a great way to do it especially to, to end a campaign i'm right with you brother <laughs> i think there's actually a big sidebar in the core rule book that talks about this specifically um and offers a couple of suggestions. Uh, it's actually in Chapter 10, which I actually wanted to mention before we close uh, as a uh, place for further reading. Uh, if you want to get some more ideas, um, there's, of course, Chapter 10 of the core book is about running campaigns. Uh, but you would know that, obviously, because you bought the book, right? Um, but it goes over mo pretty much most of what we covered, and it includes a, a handful of things. Um that uh, it's like that are from a bit more general that we haven't covered. So check them out. Uh, read chapter ten. I mean, read the whole core book. It's cool stuff. Um, I also recommend, uh, especially for role playing game storytelling, checking out Gnome Stew's uh, game mastering blog. If uh, especially if you folks here haven't checked it out, um, I check it all the time because it's uh, it's a game mastering blog. But they have a lot of really solid ones for storytelling. Um, and then for uh, more general storytelling stuff uh, and suggestions, we have uh, the Archivos Podcast Network, which talks more. It's a bit more about uh, linear story writing, but you can definitely use it for role playing games, uh, including like Dragon Age. But um, other than that, uh, I think that we've uh, we've 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 certainly delved deep. And uh, it's greedily and deep into this. No, it's, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, a lot of ink has been spilled. <laughs> it's it, This has been a blast. Uh, I <laughs> thank you both for coming on for this. Yeah, thank you so much for coming and sharing your insights. This has been great. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, well, I suppose we'll, we're supposed to have to do this more often. Yes, although uh, if we do, we'll have to find a way to make the podcast not two hours long. That will be our next goal. That was an goal. epic podcast. That'll be our next goal. Well, you know, let's see. That's that's Act Two of this uh, of this epic story that is the Wonders of Thetis. Time management skills. Epic <laughs> yeah. podcast, epic topic. It fits. You're fine. 
Exactly. Yep, there we go. If we're just we're we're demonstrating, we're demonstrating what this is meant to be. Yes. So, um, of course, thank you everybody who uh, tuned in, listening to the One Is a Thetis podcast. Uh, this is Ren wishing, uh, let's see, lots of sixes on that dragon die. This is Jessica wishing you good heels and happy feels. This is Andy keeping the dread wolf off your trail. And this is Toby bidding all GMs to entertain them or fall. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a good whatever comes next. We'll see you next time.